0: All right, Matthew chapter 3, I'm, we're just going to read it. Uh, as I mentioned last week, we're spending two weeks on uh, this passage from verse 1 uh, through 12. And so we're going to jump right back in. If you missed last week, I encourage you uh, to, to jump on our website and, and uh, go in and take that in. I think it will be a blessing to you. Uh, last week, we, we focused in on one part of the passage. Today, we're really going to key in on a phrase that is used here in verse 8, but we'll read the whole passage here uh, just so we have the context for us this morning. It says, in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he of whom was spoken by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region around the Jordan were going out to him, and they were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins." But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath that is to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father, For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees, and every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who comes after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, I pray that as we spend time here, Lord, in your presence, uh, studying your word, Lord, that you by your spirit would speak to each one of our hearts. Lord, you are a God who speaks Lord, you spoke and the worlds were created. Lord, you called our names and we we responded out of darkness and into light. And Lord, I pray that you would speak to each one of us today and help us, Lord, to live as the people that you've called us to be here in this time and in this season. Lord, the world today is a strange place, but Lord, you've called us to, to live in the world, Lord, not being of the world. So help us, Lord, to have wisdom wisdom by your spirit on on what that distinction should look like, being in the world but not being of the world. Lord, if there's places where the love of the world and and the ways of the world have taken up root in our lives today, Lord, that you would gently, as you do, bring that conviction of the Holy Spirit upon our lives today and that we would walk in repentance and faith. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So John the Baptist here is 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 preaching he's he's proclaiming this this message of repentance he says the kingdom of heaven is is here it, it's at hand it's it's about to break in to history he, he's calling people to turn from their sins and to walk in in faithfulness with the Lord. It's a message that is is a little bit jarring it's a little bit shaking because he, he's preaching to the Jewish people. He's pe- preaching to the covenant people. He's preaching to people who who believe that they are already right with God by by merit of of being a part of Abraham's family, and 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 he's beginning to to preach on turning from sin and and walking in faithfulness with God, and that God's kingdom is about to break in to the world. He, he it, Matthew tells us here that that all of this is a fulfillment of what Isaiah had prophesied 700 years before Christ, that there would come a way that would come one that would prepare the way for Jesus, and he would be like a voice crying out in the wilderness. And Matthew uses this word, fulfill. This was a fulfillment. This was he who was spoken of by the prophet. And over and over, we've seen in the first two chapters, and then here again in Matthew chapter 3, that Matthew is saying that these things are a fulfillment of what came before us. And and that's so important that we understand this. Jesus and the story of the gospel is not just some fable. It's not just some story. It's not just something that that someone thought of and wrote down. No, it, it it is historical events. The life, death, burial, resurrection, ascension of Christ... That actually happened. And also, what John is saying, or or what uh, Matthew is saying, is not only did it actually happen, but it was rooted in something. It grew out of something. It came from somewhere. That what happens in Christ is what God has been working on and producing in human history all the way back to Adam, all the way back to the creation of the world. These events are fulfilling what God has been working towards and what God has been building towards. The result we see here is there's this widespread revival that takes place, that that breaks out, where people are turning from their sins. They're going and they're being baptized, which, again, was scandalous because the only time people were baptized prior to this, was when a Gentile was converting to Judaism. And here we have Jews, people of the covenant who, who are being baptized, symbolizing that their sins are being washed away. And it's not just a few people. It's not just one or two. It tells us that, that all of Jerusalem is going out, that the whole surrounding region of Judea is going out to this prophet in the wilderness who is preaching this message. And, and last week we, we talked about how we need to be praying that God in our day would raise up some voices in this wilderness to preach and to proclaim uh, maybe a message that seems harsh, seems, seems uh, rough around the edges, but nevertheless confronts people in their sin and calls them to faith in Christ. Of course, here we see what is the result? The result is revival. We talked about how last week, last week, how revival isn't produced by soft, meaningless drivel, Uh, a few nice platitudes, you know, kind of that coffee mug Christianity that's not what produces revival. What produces revival is the preaching of the gospel and the preaching of repentance. We looked at that last week, so I'm, I'm, I'm we're not going to re-preach last week's message. But today, my aim is, is again, very practical. I want to come alongside you. I want to help you to put into practice some really some foundational principles. And so we're going to look at a couple extra passages, if you want to flip over to them now when we get to them, we'll look at Psalm 51, and we're going to look at 1 John chapter 4, Psalm 51 and 1 John chapter 4. But here we see that there's a group of people that come out that Matthew identifies as Pharisees and Sadducees, Pharisees and Sadducees. These were the religious leaders, these were the, the established the establishment, if you will, in Jerusalem. I don't have time this morning to go into the distinction between them, but Pharisees were very conservative in their approach. Uh, they, they, They believed that they would be saved by their own righteous works and good deeds. Sadducees, on the other hand, were very theologically liberal. They cozied up to Rome And they denied things like the supernatural, the resurrection. They didn't believe in angels. They they were just so practical and so liberal. And they just kind of thought, this life is all there is, so let's just get as much out of it as we can. These two groups were constantly at war with each other because their doctrine was totally... Separate. However, we do find in the Gospels they're united around one thing: their rejection of Christ, which is somewhat interesting because that today is really the only thing that the world can agree on. You find people from from conflicting views, from conflicting worldviews, from from radical feminism to the LGBTQ. Uh, parade, flag parade, whatever, alphabet parade, you, you find these two things that should be at war with one another, right? But they're united somehow, which makes no sense logically. However, what do they end up uniting on? They unite on the front of rejecting God, rejecting His Word, and rejecting Christ because though ideologically they should be diametrically opposed to one another, what they're really diametrically opposed to is Christ. And so, uh, same here. There's there's this ultra-conservative group and this ultra-liberal group, and of course I'm talking theologically, not politically, that we're constantly at war with one another, but then when it comes to the issue of Christ, they somehow are best friends with one another. They're allies in that fight. And John recognizes them. He sees them coming to Uh, to watch what's happening to watch the revival they're not coming to be baptized they're sort of sitting out around the periphery observing what is happening and John notice what he says he doesn't say oh I'm so glad you're here welcome oh let's roll out the red carpet the big wigs are here let's get them a front seat here at the baptism no what does he call them you brood of vipers. And of course, vipers in the Bible, vipers are a snake. I don't know if you know this, snakes aren't viewed very good in the Bible. All the way back to Genesis chapter 3, where Satan comes disguised as a serpent, all the way to the end of the book, the book of Revelation, where Satan is identified as that serpent. A brood is is an offspring. It's, It's kind of that that group of of eggs that have hatched. And so here, John calls the religious leaders, those who are are supposedly the the closest to God, he he doesn't call them anything good, but he calls them the offspring of Satan. It's quite quite an accusation. He says, who warned you to flee from the wrath that is to come, that that God was going to bring judgment in that day as the kingdom of God broke into the world. And then in verse 8, and here's where I really want to focus in today, he tells them this statement, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. These people were coming, the crowds were coming, they were repenting, they were confessing their sin, and here comes this other group, and John recognizes their hypocrisy. And he says, For if, if, if you're really repenting, there will be fruit. There will be evidence. We will see what it is that has taken place. There, there, there will be a change of heart. You look at verse 10, he says it again. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. A companion passage to this would be John chapter 15. I don't have time to go there this morning. But if you wanted to this week, as you meditate on the word, go to John 15. And it will even shed more light here on this passage. But I want to talk about repentance this morning. What is repentance? What is this word? He says, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. These people... We're repenting, and John says, if you are repenting, there will be fruit of it. But what is repentance? The message that he preaches calls people to repent. Literally, John's message is, repent. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's not just John's message. We'll see when we get into uh, Matthew chapter 4. Guess what Jesus' message is? It's actually the exact same one. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. After the, the death, burial, resurrection, ascension of Christ, the spirit is poured out on the church. Guess what the apostles preach? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Guess what the church today should also be preaching? R- repentance. So what is this word? What is this word? in? And it's not just John that preached it. It doesn't just start here. In fact, it starts with all of the Old Testament prophets as well. So so the theme of the Bible really is one of repentance, repentance of sin and faith in God. But what is repentance? So I want to start this morning with what repentance is not. What repentance is not? Because often repentance is mistaken for these things. So first and foremost, repentance is not feeling bad, Repentance is not simply just feeling bad about something or feeling sorry for something. That's not repentance. Repentance is also not regret over the consequence of sin. Repentance is not regret over the consequence or the fallout from sin. Repentance is not regret or sorrow of having the sin found out. That's not repentance either. You see, all of these that I've just mentioned that repentance is not, all of those are concerned with what? The self. Concerned with me rather than concern for who? For God. You see, often repentance is mistaken for, and we think we have repented, when we've experienced some of these sort of surface-level feelings. It's like when I go to, as I periodically and sometimes often have to, discipline my children. I know that you parents have experienced this. When you tell them they are going to receive discipline... They immediately begin to weep, begin to wail, begin to be filled with all of these emotions and crying out for mercy. And their weeping and their wailing is at the thought of receiving discipline. They are not concerned over their transgression. They are not cut to the heart and broken over their sin, are they? No, when they lay there anticipating justice, before a single finger has been laid upon them, they are weeping not out of contrition, but out of anticipation of the consequence. And often... We experience a similar thing in our lives and think that that equates to repentance, and it does not. True repentance involves three things. True repentance always involves three things. Now, repentance takes place in our soul. It's an act of the soul, and the soul is made up of your mind, your will, and your emotions. Your mind, your will, emotions. Repentance takes place at the level of the soul. And so for true repentance to take place, it must first affect our minds, then our emotions, and then ultimately our will. So true repentance involves three things, the mind, the will, the emotions, the full soul. So first, of course, comes the mind, the mind. That's where we gain knowledge of sin. Maybe we've been living in sin and didn't realize it, and we study God's word, we read God's word, maybe you hear a message preached, and now here comes knowledge, here comes truth. And that truth begins to, to enter into our minds and we realize and we recognize our sin. We may even understand the need to change. That knowledge of sin that comes is in our mind. For, for true repentance to take place, we must recognize first that we have transgressed God's word. We have broken God's law. That, that we are living in rebellion against God. We must... Know that and believe that. How can we repent if we don't know that we're living in sin, right? So that's step one. It's for our minds, the the knowledge of sin, understanding that we need to change. Here now comes the second part. Here now comes the emotional part. I said it was mind, will, emotions. So first mind, here we go with emotions. And herein comes a feeling of great pain. In grief for the sin that we have committed. This is what the Bible calls Godly sorrow. This is where Paul says in, in 2 Corinthians 7:10, that godly grief produces repentance that leads to salvation without regrets. Godly grief produces repentance that leads to salvation without regrets. That first comes the knowledge of sin. First comes that I know that I'm in sin and, and I've transgressed God's law and I've, I'm living in rebellion. I, I, I know what I ought to be doing, but, but then comes in this grief and this godly sorrow, this brokenness of heart over sin. I mentioned Psalm 51. If you want to flip over there with me this morning, Psalm 51. Psalm 51, written by David, is is one of the most moving Psalms. And again, this is is the the, the part that takes place at the level of our emotions. For true repentance repentance to take place, our whole soul has to be involved. Our mind, our emotions, and then ultimately our will. Psalm 51, it tells us here, a Psalm of David written when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had sinned with Bathsheba. Bathsheba. We don't have time to go there this morning, but 2 Samuel chapter 11 and 12 tell the story of David's great sin, his great fall, that he sinned with another man's wife. When she became pregnant, he had her, wife, her husband killed. This wasn't just anybody. It was actually a close friend of David, one of his most loyal subjects. King David has him killed to cover his sin. And he thinks that he has gotten away with it. He thinks that no one knows about it. After Bathsheba mourned over her husband, he marries her and he thinks the sin is covered. And so God sends Nathan the prophet to go and to tell David a a story. And upon hearing, you know what, we'll take time to go there, I'm sorry. Uh, 2 Samuel, we'll just do it very quickly, Second Samuel chapter 12, it's just so powerful. 2 Samuel chapter 12, it would take just as much time for me to paraphrase it than just to read it, so. And it'd be much better if we just read it. So David sins, tries to cover his sin. If you look at the the very end of, of chapter 11, it says David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. And the Lord sent Nathan to David, Nathan was a prophet. And he came to him and said to him, there was two men in a certain city, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. And it used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him for a meal. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deed deserves to die And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Then Nathan said to David, you are the man. You are the man. Here comes the knowledge of sin. Here comes the truth that's confronting what he had done. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. And I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would have given you much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Amorites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. This is what his own son, David's son, Absalom, is the fulfillment of this prophecy. I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. For you did it in secret, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin, and you shall not die. Nevertheless, because by the deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die then Nathan went to his house. Here comes the knowledge of sin. But David, when he hears this and he hears this message and, and he can't hide from his deeds and his actions are laid before him, the truth laid before him, he repents. He, he says, I have sinned before the Lord. He He humbles himself. Because he repents, God forgives his sin. And here, in, back to Psalm 51, here is the, the prayer that David prayed to the Lord after Nathan had confronted him with his sin. Again, we're, ta- we're talking about that godly sorrow for sin. David says this, Psalm 51: Have mercy on me, O God. According to your steadfast, steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, cleanse me from my sin. Do, do you feel the weight of the brokenness of soul that David has? Do you see that he's not just saying, oh, oh, God, just forgive me, and I repent, and thank you for saving me, and now I can get back to my life. No, there's this, there's this weight, there's this depth of brokenness, this godly grief, this godly sorrow. Verse 3, he says, I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceived me. Behold, you delight in the truth and in truth in the inward being. You teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Wash me, purge me, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach sinners your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God. O God of my salvation and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O oh Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. For you did not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise. The first step in, in true repentance And we're called to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. The first step is the knowledge of sin. The first step is is in the mind. It's knowing that we have sinned against God, that we have broken his law. But the second step is in the issue of the emotions. He says God doesn't desire sacrifice, but instead... A broken and contrite heart. A broken and contrite heart. A lot of times we try to make deals with God. A lot of times we think that we can sort of tip the scales. Where if we know we're living in sin in one area, we think if we work really hard in another, that it somehow cancels out the sin that we're living in. That's not the way it works. We don't earn our salvation through good works. No, Jesus on the cross paid the price for sin. And we are called to, to repent of sin, to be broken, to have a brokenness in our hearts, a broken and contrite heart. It says, oh God, you will not despise. So the question for all of us this morning is, have you known of this godly Sorrow? Have you felt and known this deep brokenness of the soul over your sin? Have you wept before the Lord? Or is it just in the mind? I know that I've sinned. Oh God, forgive me for my sin. But there's no effect of the emotion. You see, for us to move on to number three, we can't bypass number two. If you don't experience this godly sorrow, this brokenness of the soul over sin, you'll never be able to move into number three, which is the resolve of the will to change. I told you the soul is the mind, the will, and the emotions. For true repentance to take place, it must be all of the soul working together, but too often what happens is when we know we're living in sin, we go from step one and we try to go to step three, skipping over step two, because number two, that's painful. That, that's hard. That, that brokenness of the soul, it's difficult to enter into. It's difficult to wrestle with and grapple with our own shortcomings, faults, and failures. Amen. I don't like it when my kids tell me that I forgot to put my blinker on. We don't like to be wrong. We don't like our transgressions exposed. Even in such trivial matters. Much less. Much less. I mean, how much, how much more in, in the deepest matters of our lives? But if we try to move into this third step, the resolve of the will to change... This 180, without first walking through the brokenness in our soul because of sin, what we will find is we actually lack the will to change. We lack the desire to change. We lack the power to change. But after we receive the knowledge of sin and after we have had our souls broken, a broken and contrite heart, oh God, you will not despise, it produces in us the will to change. And this is where the word repentance comes from. It's a 180. It's, I was heading in this direction, but now I'm going in that direction. I was pursuing sin, but now I'm pursuing God. This 180. And it carries with it this deep resolve to never commit that sin again. This deep and abiding desire to make the changes necessary to safeguard ourselves. And so if I find myself sinning in this area, in this place, in this time, well, I'm going to, because I have this deep desire, this resolve of the will, I'm not going to go there anymore. If I find myself sinning when I hang around a certain group of people all the time, they're dragging me into sin. I'm not I'm not witnessing to them for Christ. Then I'm going to resolve in my mind that I am not going to enter into those places with those people anymore. I'm going to put a plan in place. I'm going to create strategies to safeguard myself. I'm going to put software on my computer to guard my eyes from temptation. I'm going to stop watching movies and entertainment that stir up in me lust, that stir up in me covetousness, that stir up in me sin. If I have the resolve to change, the desire of the will to change, I'm going to make a plan. And part of that plan is going to include somebody to keep me accountable. Somebody that will come alongside me and help me stick to the plan. I've been told this, I've never experienced it for myself, but I have been told this that for those who actually exercise and get in shape, that it helps when you have a buddy. There's like four people in here that do that, so I'm speaking to them right now. Isn't that true? It helps when you have a workout buddy who's gonna get up with you and gonna be there, and if you don't show up, they're gonna call you. Where were you this morning? At least that helps for, for men. Uh, that 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 motivation. I don't, I don't I don't know that women are exactly motivated that way, but men definitely are motivated that way. That accountability is part of is part of the body of Christ. It's part of how God has chosen to produce holiness in our lives to help sanctify us. To help brothers to, to have brothers and sisters who can help keep us accountable. That needs to be part of our plan. But where one of these is lacking, true repentance has not taken place. Hear me in this. If there is not knowledge of sin, if there is not brokenness of the heart and soul because of sin, and then a deep abiding resolve and a plan of action to never commit that sin again, true repentance has not taken place. What more than likely is happening is you're just kind of hanging out in that first where we talked about what repentance is not. I feel bad about it. Yeah, I know I should do better, but, you know, we're all human. Yes, we are all human, but aren't we who believe in Christ, are we not filled with some superhuman spirit of God, something beyond humanity, the power of the Holy Spirit? God's desire is not for you to stay bound in sin, In fact, the Bible says, he who the son sets free is free indeed. That if you are in Christ, you are a new creation. That the power of sin has been, past tense, has been broken in your life. And you, with the help of others and the power of the spirit and the power of the word and accountability, you can walk in victory. Repentance is victory, not defeat. Repentance is walking in victory. Now, if you're struggling with this, if you find yourself struggling with repentance, maybe, you, again, you know you're living in sin. You understand you need to change. Maybe you even want to change, but you're, you're finding it hard to find the will to change. Maybe you're lacking in that grief, that brokenness of the soul. What can you do at this point? What can you do? Well, again, as I told you, repentance is a matter of the soul. And the soul, I want to give you, I'm going to give you just some real practical things here. The soul is like a garden. Whatever you plant in it is going to grow. Also, there are just weeds that pop up that you've got to pull out or they're going to take over everything. The soul is like a garden. It grows whatever seeds are planted in it. And so if you find yourself with the knowledge knowing you need to change, but not the brokenness of soul to change, I have to ask you, what are you taking in to your soul? Are you taking in, are you watching, are you reading, are you listening to things that deaden your soul to the truth of God's word? Are you taking in things that harden your heart? What are you watching? What are you reading? What are you consuming? It affects your soul. It really does. The word of God softens our hearts. It will break our hearts. What if we're not in the word and we're just living in the world Media, news, movies, entertainment, music, comparing ourselves to people on social media, that's a big trap. You're confronted with the truth, the knowledge of sin, but then you begin to compare yourself to other people and other families and other husbands and other wives and you say, (laughs) at least I'm not like that. And it immediately pours a wet blanket on what God's trying to do in your own soul. And you don't even realize that it's happened. What are you taking in? What are you watching? What are you beholding? The entertainment that's put out today is just designed to deaden your soul against the prick of the Holy Spirit for sin. Desensitize us. The news does the same, does it not? We read these news reports and we hear the news, we hear it all the time of, of just horrible things happening in the world, and we hear it so much that it doesn't even affect us anymore. We don't even feel it anymore. It's because our souls have become numb. We've we got to be in the Word. It, it is the Word that produces that good fruit. It reorients our hearts, our thoughts, our feelings. The Bible says that we were created, designed by God to behold His glory in the face of Jesus Christ. And that as we behold His glory, He transforms us into His image and to his likeness. We were designed as these mirrors. It's what it means to be an image bearer that whatever we behold, we reflect. And we're beholding all of these things and not beholding God, not beholding his glory. And so firstly, we must seriously consider what it is that we are taking into our lives. And secondly, I would submit this to you. If you are if you are not feeling the brokenness of soul because of sin, consider what you're taking in firstly, and then secondly, meditate on the love of God. Meditate on God's love. Meditate on his love. The word meditate doesn't mean to cross your legs and hum. That's Eastern mysticism. That, that's not what the Bible talks about when it talks about meditation. What the world talks about meditation is emptying your mind of everything. When the Bible talks about meditation, it's meaning put into your mind the right things. Amen. So think on the love of God. Sing on the love of God. Set your mind on the love of God. Meditate on it day and night. You say, well, why would that help? Well, Romans 2.4 says that the goodness of God leads us to repentance. The goodness of God will lead us to repentance. I said 1 John 4, if you want to flip over there super quick today, 1 John 4. to meditate on the love of God, God's love. Wow. There's nothing like God's love. God's love is not like our love. God's love love is not like worldly love. God's love is is holy. It is totally other. Verse 9 of First John 4 says in this the love of God was made manifest among us. God's love manifest itself in this way that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. You find yourself struggling with with the godly sorrow over sin, meditate on that. Meditate on God's love. Verse 10 says, in this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation. That means atoning sacrifice for our sins. Meditate on God's love. Meditate on the love of God expressed in the cross of Christ. Look to the cross. Look to the arms of the Savior stretched out wide. Look to Christ bleeding and broken and dying. Look to the one who on the cross prayed, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Look to the one who said, not my will, but yours be done. Look to the one who despised the shame of the cross, but went to it for the joy that was set before him. In verse 19 here it says that we love him because he first loved us. When we look at God's love, when we see His love for us, what does it produce in our lives? A love for Him. A love for Him. When we see how He has sacrificed, when we see how He has humbled Himself, when we see everything that He has done because of His love for us, it produces in us a love for Him. And then Jesus, of course, says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. So our repentance, our obedience, flows not from our love for Christ. Rather, our love for Christ flows from his love for us. Demonstrated perfectly at the cross. Therefore, the foundation, what undergirds all of my Christian life, what undergirds even my repentance, the foundation for my repentance is God's love for me. So to grow in repentance, I must grow in my knowledge of God's love. And I grow in my knowledge of God's love as I meditate on the gospel. The gospel which tells me the depths of my sin, the goodness of my creator, the holiness of God. The gospel which tells us about Emmanuel, God with us, the incarnation, about his substitutionary sacrifice that he died in my place. When I meditate on his victorious resurrection to give me new life and eternal life, when I meditate on his ascension into glory seated at the right hand of God, And when I meditate on that, he gives eternal life to all who would believe in him because of grace, 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 grace. Not because of my works, which are as filthy rags, but because of his finished work on the cross. Grace, 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 amen. And so repentance then finds its true source of power not in my love for God, but in His love for me. And what glorious good news this is, because my love at times grows cold. Because my love at times can be passionately hot one moment and then ice cold frigid the next. But God's love for me burns brighter than a thousand suns perfectly, continuously, constantly. In fact, His love for me existed before the worlds began. Amen. And so when I meditate on this love, his constant love, his abiding love that manifests at the cross of Christ, it produces a love in me for him and it will produce in me a brokenness over sin. Paul writes to the Ephesians that that we, he prays, that we would have the power to understand what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth of the love of Christ. Repentance means change. There are three steps, but the end, keeping fruit that keep with repentance, bear fruit that keeps with repentance, it means change, change. But it's not my attitude towards sin that changes first. What first changes is my attitude towards God. When I look at God, when I behold, as we sang this morning, behold our God, seated on the throne, nothing can compare to His glory to his majesty, to his goodness, when I take my eyes off of the, the fleeting, the temporary, the carnal, the worldly, the fleshly, the sinful, and I place it on the glory of Christ that nothing can compare to, it changes who I am. To embrace in such a way the holy God that it necessarily results in a forsaking of sin, and that this embrace, as he embraces us and we embrace him, this love relationship that we have together, it changes us. It transforms us. By his love, we are transformed. As we pray daily, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What we need to do is we need to let the love of God flow into and saturate every fiber of our being. Every nook, every cranny, every crevice. And that there are some of us who, because we have been hurt in the past, We are afraid to, we are unwilling to open ourselves up to the love of God because we have been hurt by people who said that they loved us. And so we have walled off areas of our heart and areas of our soul from even God himself. And God's love is not like the world's love. God is one who will never leave us or forsake us. God is the God who is always with us. God is the God who who takes everything in our lives and works it for our good, amen. And we need to let the love of God, we need to let down those, those barriers that we've placed in our lives and let the love of God flood into our souls and saturate every fiber of our being. And if we will do that, we will bear fruit that keeps with repentance. It's not based on my love for him. At the root, the foundation that undergirds it all is his amazing love for us. Amen? I invite you to stand with me this morning as we reflect on God's amazing love love. As we come to the cross, as we, or we come to communion, we focus here on the cross. A year ago or so, a little bit over a year ago, we, we made an adjustment so that we would take the Lord's table every week. And we did that because a lot happens in a week. And we need to reflect on the glory of God in Christ. We need to reflect on the love of God that's shown in the cross of Christ. And that's what communion does. We remember the sacrifice. We remember the price that was paid to redeem our lives. We remember that we've been called to repent of sin and to trust in him. And we remember that his love is a love like no other reaching down into the darkest depths, reaching down into the darkest and most broken places of our lives, and that his love produces such glorious and good fruit in us. And so as we take of communion this morning, I just invite you to trust in him, to trust in the goodness of the one who hung on that tree, who was nailed to the cross, who endured the shame, and who endured the price for sin, and who gives forgiveness and grace to all who would believe on him in faith. Amen? Amen. Father, we thank you for your word and this time in your word. Lord, I pray that you would help us by your spirit to bear fruit and good fruit that keeps with repentance. Lord, as we come to the table, we remember the great price that you paid to redeem our lives. And we give you glory and we give you praise. Press these truths deep into our heart. Help us to remember that it is all of grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.